0: SECTION 2 OF THE FINAL REPORT FROM THE NATIONAL COMMISSION ON THE B.P. DEEP WATER HORIZON OIL SPILL AND OFFSHORE DRILLING This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria Casper. Final Report from the National Commission on the BP Deepwater Horizon Oil Spill and Offshore Drilling Chapter 1 The Deepwater Horizon the Macondo Well and Sudden Death on the Gulf of Mexico Part 2 Steve Bertone the rig's chief engineer had been in bed reading the first sentence of his book when he noticed an odd noise As it progressively got louder, it sounded like a freight train coming through my bedroom. And then there was a thumping sound that consecutively got much faster, and with each thump I felt the rig actually shake. After a loud boom, the lights went out. He leapt out of bed, opening his door to let in the emergency hall light so he could get dressed. The overhead public address system crackled to life. Fire! fire fire the air smelled and tasted of some kind of fuel a second explosion roared through flinging bertone across the room he stood up pulled on his coveralls work boots and hard hat and grabbed a life vest out in the hall clogged with debris from blown out walls and ceilings four or five men stood in shock Bertone yelled to them to go out, by the port forward or starboard forward spiral staircases, and report to their emergency stations. He ran toward the bridge. He went to the port side back computer, the dynamic positioning system responsible for maintaining the rig's position. I observed that we had no engines, no thrusters, no power whatsoever. I picked up the phone, which was right there, and I tried calling extension 2268, which is the engine control room. There was no dial tone whatsoever. It was then that Bertone looked out to the bridge's starboard window. I was fully expecting to see steel and pipe and everything on the rig floor. When I looked out the window, I saw fire from derrick leg to derrick leg and as high as I could see. At that point I realized that we had just had a blowout. out hit the general alarm. The alarm went off. Report to emergency stations and lifeboats. The rig crew heard, This is not a drill. This is not a drill. Fletus, realizing that the rig had not yet issued a Mayday call, sent it out. Out in the dark of the gulf, three friends, on the thirty-one-foot Ramblin' Wreck, were out on the water for a day of tuna-fishing. Around 9.45 p.m., Bradley Shivers trained his binoculars at a brilliant light in the distance, and realized it must be an oil rig on fire. On their radio they heard, Mayday, 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 this is the deep water Horizon, we are on fire. At that moment they heard and felt a concussive sonic boom. The ramble and wreck headed to the scene, their first tuna outing of the year cut short. Bertone was now back to his station on the bridge, thinking the engines should be starting up, because in approximately twenty-five to thirty seconds two engines start up come on line. There was still no power of any kind, no engines starting. No indication of engines starting. At that moment, the watertight door to his left banged open, and he heard someone say, The engine room, ECR, engine control room, and pump room are gone. They are all gone. Bertone turned around. What do you mean gone? The man speaking was so coated in blood Bertone had no idea who he was. Then he recognized the voice. It was Mike Williams. Bertone saw how badly lacerated Williams's forehead was, grabbed a roll of toilet paper from the bathroom, pressed it on the wound to staunch the bleeding, and ordered, Hold this here. Then he went back to his station and looked at his screen. There was still nothing. No engines starting, no thrusters running. Nothing. We were still a dead ship. He heard the water-tight door slam again, and saw another man soaked in blood, holding a rag to his head, repeating, I'm hurt, I'm hurt, bad chief, I'm hurt real bad. It was the voice of Brent Mansfield, a transocean marine engineer. Bertone pulled back Mansfield's hand, holding a rag, saw the head wound, and ran over to the bridge door, and yelled down to the life-vessel area, We need a medic up here, now." After the explosion, Randy Azell lay buried under the blown-out walls and ceilings of the tool-pusher's office. The room was dark and smoky, the debris atop him so heavy he could barely move. On the third try adrenaline kicked in. I told myself, either you get up or you're going to lay here and die. Pulling hard on his right leg, he extricated it and tried to stand up. That was the wrong thing to do, because I immediately stuck my head into smoke. I dropped back down. I got on my hands and knees, and for a few moments I was totally disoriented. He wondered which way the door was. He felt air. He crawled through the debris toward the door, and realized the air was methane. He could feel the droplets. HE WAS CRAWLING SLOWLY ATOP THE RUBBLE IN THE PITCH-BLACK HALL WHEN HE FELT A BODY. Azell THEN SAW A BOBBING BEAM OF LIGHT. STAN CARDEN, THE ELECTRICAL SUPERVISOR, CAME ROUND THE CORNER. CARDEN HAD A LIGHT THAT BOUNCED OFF SHATTERED WALLS AND COLLAPSED CEILINGS IN THE PITCH-BLACK CORRIDOR, GIVING GLIMPSES INTO ROOMS ON EACH SIDE, WRECKED BY THE POWER OF THE BLAST. Stumbling into what was left of the hall was offshore installation manager Jimmy Harrell, who had been in the shower when the rig exploded. He had donned coveralls, and now was groping his way out of what was left of his room. "'I think I've got something in my eyes,' Harrell said. "'He had no shoes. I got to see if I can find me some shoes.' Carden and Ezel dragged Debris off the man they now recognized as Wyman Wheeler, Chad Murray, Transocean's chief electrician, also appeared in the hall with a flashlight, and was immediately dispatched to find a stretcher for the injured man. Believing it would save time to walk Wheeler out, Azel slung Wheeler's arm around his shoulder. Wheeler groaned. "'Set me down. Y'all go on. Save yourself.' Azel said, "'No, we're not going to leave you. We're not going to leave you in here.' Just then they heard another voice from under the rubble. "'God help me! Somebody please help me!' Near the ruins of the maintenance office, the flashlight picked out a pair of feet jutting from the rubble. It was the visiting Transocean manager, Buddy Trahan, badly injured. By now Murray was there with a stretcher. Ezell, Cardin and Murray dragged away the remains of ceilings and walls, trapping Trahan, and loaded him on the stretcher. Carden and Murray carried him through the smoke and dark to the bow of the rig and the lifeboats. Outside the derrick fire roared upward into the night sky, an inferno throwing off searing heat and clouds of black smoke. The blinding yellow of the flames was the only illumination, except for the occasional flashlight. The rig's alarms were going off while over the public announcement system, Keplinger yelled, This is not a drill. As the crew struggled out of the blasted quarters, galley, and offices, in various states of undress, they converged in a chaotic and panicked mass at the life-saving vessels, putting on life-vests. Sandell, the gantry crane operator, had escaped and come around the port side of the deck to the life-vessels, It was a lot of screaming, just a lot of screaming, a lot of hollering. A lot of scared people, including me, was scared. And trying to get people on boats, it was very unorganized. We had some wounded we were putting in the boat. Had people on the boat yelling, drop the boat, drop the boat. And we still didn't have everybody on the boat yet. We was still trying to get people on the boat, and trying to calm them down enough to... "'trying to calm them down enough to get everybody on the boat. "'And there was people jumping off the side. "'We was trying to get an accurate count, "'and couldn't get an accurate count "'because people were just jumping off the boat. "'On the Bankston, Captain Alwyn J. Landry "'was on the bridge, updating his log, "'when his mate noticed the mud. "'Landry stepped out and saw mud "'falling on the back half of my boat, "'kind of like a black rain.' He called the Deepwater Horizon Bridge to say, I'm getting mud on me. Landry instructed his crew to get inside. The Deepwater Horizon called back and told him to move back 500 meters. A crew member noticed a mud-covered seagull and egret fall to the deck. Shortly after Landry saw the rig explode, before the ship could move away his crew had to detach the long mud transfer hose connecting them to the rig as they scrambled to disconnect the bankston slowly moved one hundred meters back then five hundred meters as the rig went dark and secondary explosions rocked the decks the bankston turned on its searchlight landry could see deepwater horizon crew mustering by the portside life vessels that's when I seen the first of three or four people jump to the water from the rig. One of those was Gregory Metch, a compliance specialist. After five minutes of the chaos around the lifeboats and a series of large explosions, he headed down to the lower deck. He jumped into the water. Antonio Gervasio, the Bankstons relief chief, and two others began launching the ship's fast rescue craft, Within a minute or two of the explosions, they got the boat lowered into the water, and noticed how calm the gulf was. I saw the first person jump in the water, so I told one of the guys to keep an eye on him. The rig life jackets were reflective, and as the fast craft made its first sweep round from one side of the burning rig to the other, they hauled Mech and two or three others out of the water. Back on the rig... Transocean's Winslow had made his way from the coffee shop to the lifeboats, surviving the second blast's wave of concussive force, which blew in the corridor's walls and ceilings. On the deck a firestorm of flames roared in the night sky above the derrick. Winslow directed the dazed crew toward the covered life saving vessels, instructing the first arrivals, We need to make sure we get a good head count. Seeing Captain Kuchta standing at the starboard bridge door, he ran up and said people should evacuate. Kuchta answered, OK. Panic was building as the derrick fire roared. Winslow heard someone yelling that people were jumping overboard. As the lifeboats filled, crew members were screaming to lower the boats. But not everyone was there. Carden and Murray appeared, with Trahan on the stretcher, and handed him into the vessel, where he was laid out. People in the boat screamed, "'We've got to go! We've got to go!' A man in his life-vest was hanging on the rig handrails, preparing to drop overboard. Winslow said, "'Hey, where are you going? There's a perfectly good boat here. Do you trust me?' He and another crew member coaxed the man down and into one of the life-vessels, where people were still screaming to leave. Down below, in the water, the crew could see swaths of burning oil rising and falling with the gentle swell. The jumpers were visibly bobbing and swimming in their life vests shining with fluorescent strips. The Bankston's fast rescue craft was hauling them out of the water. By now, Winslow began to wonder why the derrick was still roaring with flames. Hadn't the blowout preventer been activated? sealing off the well and thus cutting off fuel for the conflagration he headed to the bridge kuchta said we've got no power we've got no water no emergency generator steve bertone was still at his station on the bridge and he noticed christopher pleasant one of the subsea engineers standing next to the panel with the emergency disconnect switch eds to the blowout preventer Bertone hollered to Pleasant, "'Have you eds Pleasant replied he needed permission. Bertone asked Winslow was it okay, and Winslow said yes. Somebody on the bridge yelled, "'He cannot EDS without the OIM's approval, "'Offshore Installation Manager.' Harold, still dazed, somewhat blinded and deafened, had also made it to the bridge, as had BP's vidrine. With the rig still latched to the Macondo well, Harrell was in charge. Bertone yelled, Can we EDS? And Harrell yelled back, Yes, EDS, EDS. Pleasant opened the clear door covering the panel and pushed the button. Bertone, I need confirmation that we have eds Pleasant, Yes, we've eds Bertone, Chris, I need confirmation again. Have we eds Pleasant. Yes. Bertone. Chris, I have to be certain. Have we eds Pleasant. Yes. He pointed to a light in the panel. By now, B.P.'s O'Brien, who saw red lights on the EDS panel, had put on a life vest. He looked at his colleague Sims and said they should head to the lifeboats. Outside, the conflagration continued to rage, a brilliant blinding yellow that threw off a deafening roar and blistering heat. As the fire raged on, new explosions rang out, spewing hot debris. O'Brien, unsure of which life vessel he should board, recalled being given a notice at his safety orientation listing his boat. He pulled it out of his back pocket. Lifeboat, too. He figured out which one it was, stepped into the dark interior, and squeezed into a seat. Some people were screaming, "'We've got to go! We've got to go!' B.P.'s Robert Caluza had made his way up from his cabin and had boarded a lifeboat. Winslow had returned to the lifeboats. He yelled over the noise to the panicked crew members. "'We've got plenty of time!' Then he looked up at the sky-high flames engulfing the derrick right about that time is when the traveling equipment the drilling blocks and whatnot on the derrick fell they were probably forty to fifty foot in the air you know weigh a hundred and fifty thousand pounds and they didn't make any noise when they fell so at that time i instructed the boat to my right which would have been the port survival boat to depart they did winslow then helped lower his own life vessel over approximately 125 feet, to the gulf. Winslow discovered the lifeboat windows were obscured by mud. He opened the hatch and pointed the coxswain toward the Bankston vessel. Then he clambered out onto the outside so that he could grab the rope thrown to him by the Bankston crew. The Bankston had made radio contact, and Captain Landry instructed the vessels to come round to his starboard side, sheltered from the rig the rig life vessels were not the only small craft fleeing the firestorm four high school buddies out fishing had sailed up to the rig around seven thirty p m on their twenty six foot catamaran and settled in by the pontoons the rig's blazing lights attracted small fish which in turn attracted tuna about two hours later the group noticed water flowing out of the rig's pipes followed by blowing gas one young man had worked on rigs and began yelling go 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 the owner pointed the boat away from the rig and gunned the engine then the lights went out and the rig blew back up on the deep water horizon bridge bertone asked captain kuchta's permission to go to the standby generator room to try to manually start it he assumed that the eds had worked my thinking at that point was the B.O.P. blowout preventer had unlatched. What remaining fuel would be in the riser, it would burn away, and we were going to need power as well as fire pumps. As Bertone left, Mike Williams, his head wounds no longer bleeding, said, "'You're not going alone, chief. Well, come on.' Paul Meinhart, a motorman, joined them. As Bertone ran to the standby generator room, he looked up at the derrick, where the crown should be. I could see nothing but flames, way past the crown. The noise, heat, and smoke were ferocious. The deck was slick, almost an inch and a half deep, with something thick like mucus. Bertone thought to himself, as he tried not to slip, why is all this snot on the deck? They passed the blowout preventer house, a huge door that seemed 80 to 90 feet tall and 50 feet wide. They looked down into the moon pool and saw only solid flames. Inside the standby generator room, Bertone flipped the switch, from automatic to manual, hitting the reset and the start button. There was absolutely no turning over of the engine. I tried it again, the reset button and the start. Again nothing happened. He reset other functions and turned the switch for the automatic sync on the standby generator to manual. I ran back to the panel and again tried the reset and the start. There was no turning over of the engine whatsoever. They made yet another effort, using different batteries. Nothing. Bertone yelled, That's it. Let's go back to the bridge. It's not going to crank. When they opened the watertight door to walk back to the bridge, the heat struck like a blast furnace. The derrick fire roared into the sky, billowing black smoke. The rig had not unlatched from the well. On the bridge, Kuchta was standing with the door open, watching the lifeboat station. The first lifeboat had departed, while the second vessel was visible in the burning water just pulling away from the rig. Bertone returned to the bridge, looked through the open door, and yelled to Williams and Meinhart, "'That's it. Abandon ship. Let's go.' He turned to Keplinger and Flatus, still manning their radios. He shouted over the noise, "'That's it. Abandon ship. Let's go now.' Randy Azell had stayed with Wyman Wheeler in the blasted-out hallway in the dark. I told him I wasn't going to leave him, and I didn't. And it seemed like an eternity, but it was only a couple of minutes before they, Murray and Carden, came back with the second stretcher. We were able to get Wyman on that stretcher, and we took him to the bow of the rig. They emerged from the living quarters to feel the blast of the fire roaring skyward, the sound deafening, the heat roasting. "'The first thing I observed is both of the main lifeboats had already been deployed,' said Ezell, and they left. "'I also looked to my left, and I saw Captain Kurt and a few of his marine crew starting to deploy a life raft. "'And we continued down the walkway till we got to that life raft, "'and we set the stretcher down. "'They got a life vest to Wheeler.' chief mate david young and bertone hooked the life raft up and proceeded to crank it up out of its lift rotated it around to the side of the rig and then dropped it dropped it out so that you could inflate the raft and you could be clear of the rig a rope attached to a bulky shackling device refused to give bertone yelled for a knife to cut the rope nobody had one no pocket knives were allowed on the rig Williams found a gigantic nail-clipper-like device and used it to unscrew the stuck shackle freeing the rope. The life raft moved out over the side of the rig. Young got in. Behind them, explosions punctuated the heat, noise, and dark. Thick acrid smoke was rolling over the deck. Bertone rushed over to the gurney and with Ezell's help maneuvered Wheeler toward the raft. The two men shoved Wheeler off and in. More explosions and searing heat engulfed them. The flames were spreading further up and around the rig toward them. Bertone leaped in the life raft. Even through his leather gloves he could feel the heat. Fletas jumped in, and the raft lurched back and forth. She cried out, "'We're going to die! We're going to die!' bertone felt the same way as the raft filled with smoke and the flames leapt closer i honestly thought we were going to cook right there the life raft rocked back and forth in the air between the rig decks and then began herky-jerky to descend they touched the water which was ablaze someone yelled where are the paddles bertone jumped out and grabbed the rope and began swimming pulling the life raft away from the rig. Murray and Meinhardt jumped into the water to help pull the raft along. Bertone looked up and saw a tremendous amount of smoke bellowing out from under the rig. At that moment Boots appeared out of the smoke. It was Captain Kutchta jumping into the water. Unable to get into the raft in the confusion, he leaped over one hundred feet. He splashed into the gulf, five feet from Bertone. Then a second person came flying through the air, out of the thick smoke, crashing into the water. Keplinger had jumped too. By now Bertone and his men had managed to pull the life raft far enough away from the rig that they could see the circular helipad silhouetted against the flames. Bertone could see someone running at full speed across the helipad deck, and then leaping off the rig. It was Mike Williams, the electronics technician. Williams splashed down nearby, resurfaced, and began swimming toward the bankston. Bertone felt the life raft no longer moving forward. So did Fletus. She rolled out of the raft into the water and began to swim. Someone hollered, The painter line is tied to the rig. Bertone could see the painter line go taut. Murray screamed, "'Help! We need help over here!' Bertone spotted the Bankston's fast rescue craft, its two lights flashing fifty or sixty yards away. The boat had stopped to haul two men from the water. Bertone and others screamed, "'We need a knife! We need a knife!' As the rescue craft neared, Kutchta swam to get a large foldable pocket-knife, swam back, and cut the rope. Heat and smoke boiled out from the rig. Murray and Cardin tied a rope to the fast rescue craft, which towed them to the bankston. Bertone helped lift the injured man, whom he finally learned was Wheeler, onto a stretcher on the flat bottom of the rescue craft, the bankston crew then used its crane to lift the stretcher to the deck by eleven forty five p m the lifeboats were empty captain kuchta went directly to the bridge where he worked with others to see who had firefighting capacity among other matters simms and winslow were already there organizing bps and transocean's response harrell remained on the main deck with the traumatized rig crew many still half-dressed, lacerated, or soaked from being in the sea. The crew filled the 260-foot Bankston's lounge, galley, and parts of the main deck, including a temporary medical area. Some lay in the bunks. The Bankston crew pulled out whatever dry clothes and boots they had and handed them to the survivors. With both life vessels and the life raft secured to the Bankston, THE DEEP WATER HORIZON LEADERS COULD TRY TO TAKE MUSTER. THERE HAD BEEN 126 PEOPLE ON THE RIG WHEN THE WELL BLEW OUT. IN THE CONFUSION NO ONE YET KNEW EXACT COUNTS, BUT CONSPICUOUSLY MISSING WERE THOSE WORKING THE DRILL FLOOR. THE BANKSTON WAS NOW JAMMED WITH THE SURVIVORS. SOME CRIED, OTHERS PRAYED, GRATEFUL TO BE ALIVE. Bertone went out to the makeshift hospital on the main deck to tend to Mansfield, prostrate on the floor, his head swathed in bandages and gauze, his neck in a brace, his mouth covered with an oxygen mask. Bertone stayed with him, adjusting his oxygen mask and keeping him conscious. On a bed nearby was Buddy Trahan, and Bertone talked to him to keep him awake too. When the first Coast Guard helicopter arrived, at 11.22 p.m., it lowered a rescue swimmer to oversee medical evacuation of the injured. Bertone helped move Trahan, who was severely injured, onto a gurney. More helicopters would be coming to evacuate the sixteen injured crew members to hospitals on the mainland. On board the Bankston, the atmosphere was grim, the crew was forbidden to call home until there was more definitive information. By 11.30 p.m. the managers had taken a final muster, and eleven men were missing. Jason Anderson, Dale Birkin, Donald Clark, Stephen Curtis, Roy Kemp, Gordon Jones, Carl Dale Keplinger, Blair Manuel, Dewey Revet, Shane Roshto, and Adam Weese. The survivors sat on the boat in shock, and watched the firestorm on the rig rage unabated, its plume of black smoke boiling up high into the night. At one thirty a.m., the rig listed and rotated, in the wake of more secondary explosions, workboats which had begun arriving and spraying water on the rig in response to the mayday call moved back by two fifty a m the deepwater horizon had spun one hundred and eighty degrees and its dynamic positioners dead moved sixteen hundred feet from the well by three fifteen a m when the u s Coast Guard cutter pompano arrived on the scene the rig was listing heavily Dennis Martinez realized his dead father's ring, which he removed only when working, was still on the rig. The three men in the rambling wreck had continued to scour the waters near the rig, looking for survivors or the dead. Several times they spotted what they thought might be a body, only to find it was debris. They heard rumbling sounds coming from deep below the surface of the water, possibly underwater explosions, as the rig burned, exploded, listed, and drifted. Frightened, they still kept to their search. After rescue boats came on the scene, they ferried medical supplies between one of those and the Bankston. At 3 a.m. the three fishermen headed home. On the Bankston, the Deepwater Horizon crew deeply wished they could do the same. As the largest boat in the vicinity, the Bankston had been ordered by the Coast Guard to stay put while the search-and-rescue effort unfolded. The search helicopters buzzed overhead, methodically surveying one section after another. "'Once the sixteen injured were evacuated,' said Bertone, "'I made my way up to one of the upper levels and sat there and watched the rig burn.' As oil and gas exploded up and out of the riser, the towering flames set fire to tanks and pipes, sending yet more roiling black smoke high into the sky. Sitting there, hour after hour, watching the conflagration with all its cascading smaller explosions, was one of the most painful things we could ever have done, said Randy Azell, to stay on location and watch the rig burn. Those guys that were on there were our family. It would be like seeing your children or your brothers or sisters perish in that manner. And that—that puts some mental scarring in a lot of people's heads that will never go away. I wish that we could to the bare minimum have moved away from the location or something, where we didn't have to just sit there and review that many hours. That was extremely painful. Not until 8.13 that morning, when many boats were on the scene, did the Bankston get permission to set sail, with the 99 survivors on board, for Port Fourchon, Louisiana, the sprawling oil-supply depot that was its home base. The Coast Guard's coordinated search had located no further crew, dead or alive. An hour into the Bankston's 114-mile journey back to shore, it stopped at the Ocean Endeavour Rig to take on two medics. B.P.'s Sims and Transocean's Winslow, along with subsea engineers Mark Hay and Chris Pleasant, debarked to await the Max chue They would return to the Burning Rig and dispatch a remotely operated vehicle down to the Burning Rig's blowout preventer, The plan was to activate it with the so-called hot stab of hydraulic fluid to finally close in the wellhead. It was a clear spring day as the Bankston sailed along through the gulf, passing the many offshore platforms that dot its blue waters. At 2.09 p.m. the Bankston pulled in at the gargantuan Matterhorn production rig to take on more supplies tobacco, water, and coveralls. Officials from the Coast Guard and Minerals Management Service also boarded. There was still almost a twelve-hour journey to Port Fourchon. Officials intended to gather information while memories were still fresh. At 6.35 p.m., the Federal officials began conducting interviews. Asking each crew member to write a witness statement describing the events they experienced leading up to the blowout and then the abandonment of the rig, the Bankston chugged toward the Louisiana coast as night fell. The crew, speaking among themselves, wondered how such a calamity had befallen their rig. At 1:27 a.m. on Earth Day, Thursday, April 22nd. TWENTY-SEVEN HOURS AFTER THE CREW HAD FLED THE EXPLODING DEEP-WATER HORIZON, THE BANKSTON BERTHED IN SLIP ONE AT THE SEAPORT TERMINAL AT PORT Fourchamp. THE EXHAUSTED MEN AND WOMEN WALKED ONTO LAND. Arrayed BEFORE THEM WAS A TABLE, STACKED WITH FORMS, AND SURROUNDED BY UNIFORMED OFFICIALS AND COMPANY MANAGERS. BEYOND THAT STOOD A LONG ROW OF PORTABLE TOILETS. As each crew member walked up, he or she was handed a small plastic cup. Per Federal regulations, they would all be drug tested. The investigation of the Deepwater Horizon disaster had begun. End of Section 2